The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. I'll say what everyone's thinking. You three sound fantastic. Thank you guys. You guys can have a seat. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can stand here this morning and we, because of your son, can confidently enter your presence without fear and trembling, but with confidence that we can sing hallelujah just like the angels right now are singing around your throne, that we can acknowledge your holiness, we can acknowledge your, uh, who you are without fear because we stand before you declared righteous because of the finished work of Christ. Lord, as we get to open up your word, as we get to read and hear once again this great story of grace, we marvel, we, we worship at the idea that you sent your son, you sent your words, you, you, you came to reconcile sinners to yourself. Father, I, I pray as we get to open up your word, as we get to discuss once again just the, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of you as the good shepherd, that our hearts and minds would be open and that we would be softened to the truth of your word. And that as always, we would, we would leave this morning better trusting and resting in you. Just be with us now in your son's name, amen. Well, I would encourage you to turn to the gospel of John chapter 10. And as you guys are turning there, I, uh, I need to thank the congregation. So October is Pastoral Appreciation Month. And the pastors, because it's Pastoral uh, Appreciation Month, have all purchased new Bibles um, through the church. We actually all purchased the same Bible, so we're going to have to figure out how we can not walk out with each other's Bibles at the end of each Sunday. But I just want to say thank you for uh, your love and support and um, gift that you guys offered us through the congregation through these new Bibles, which I'm preaching from this morning for the first time. And it's, it looks different, so I might stumble over some things, cause, but I'll, I'll, I'll work through it. John chapter 10. So the last couple of weeks, we've been in the series looking at the Good Shepherd. We uh, started out seeing how the Good Shepherd is the promised shepherd from um, Ezekiel 34. Then uh, the next week, we looked at how Christ is the Good Shepherd and fulfills all of that and what his attributes are. Jeremy got to unpack that for us. And last week, we looked at what it means to be a sheep of God, what it means to be in the fold of God and uh, with us listening, looking, and following. I messed up that triad, but you get the picture. And last week, I left you with a question, and the question was inside the sermon, and I said, we're going to come back to it, and the question is this, are you following the right shepherd? And that poses for us the question of, okay, there's the good shepherd, but in John 10, it's very clear that there's also other shepherds. There's bad shepherds. There's thieves and there's robbers. I mean, this is how John 10 opens up. So if you just want to read the first five verses with me. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And when he has brought them, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the stranger's voice. Now it goes on in John 10 to explain that because when John, when Jesus told this parable of sorts, the people were really saying, what does that mean? But it, 
poses the, for us a question of, okay, there's the good shepherd, but very clearly there's bad shepherds. There's thieves, there's wolves, and there's robbers. There's people that are impersonating the good shepherd, trying to steal them away from his flock. And so the final installment of this series in John 10 on, on the good shepherd is going to be looking at the wolves and the robbers. Where we are first going to have a comparison between the good shepherd and the bad shepherd from John 10, where then, this is just kind of giving you an outline of where we're heading in this sermon, we're then, we're, we are then going to go to Matthew 23 and look at how Jesus um, is very clear on his anger and, and judgment towards bad shepherds, i.e. the Pharisees. And then uh, last of all, we're going to look at what do the wolves and robbers look like today? How can we uh, pick them out of our Christian culture? Because unfortunately, they still exist today. So I, I want to look at first by comparing John 10 and comparing the good shepherd with the bad shepherd. We've read this passage for the last three weeks. We've been dealing with it. And it's very clear that the good shepherd is just that, is good, is amazing. What he does for the sheep is unlike any other uh, shepherd does. But we can see how the bad shepherds try to capitalize, try to, to steal away the sheep. So if, if you'll just look with me, we're going to walk through uh, this passage, John 10. 10 through 21 together. And I just want to highlight some of the comparisons, as I said, between the good shepherd and the bad shepherd. From verse 1 and verse 9 and 10, verse 1 says this, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in a, another way, that man is a thief or a robber. 9 and 10, as he's explaining this more, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The good shepherd knows the way to God. The bad shepherd directs people in another direction. The good shepherd understands there's only one door. There's only one entrance. There's only one path towards God. The bad shepherds come in and say, it's not just one it's not exclusive. There's many ways. You can follow me and you can follow them. You can follow, you, you, you can follow Christ or you can follow other things. They spread it out. They lie to the sheep by saying it's not exclusive. In verses 3 through 5, we see that the good shepherd knows his sheep, but the bad shepherds do not know his sheep. It says this in 3, the gatekeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know their voice. When I say that the good shepherd knows the sheep, what I'm really meaning here is the good shepherd knows the sheep. And I'm not really meaning name or knowledge or background, but knows their weaknesses knows their frame. It says in Psalm 103:14 that he knows our frame and he remembers that we are but dust. When the good shepherd calls us, he's not surprised by who's coming. He's not surprised by our weaknesses, by our struggles, by our sins, by our failures. He knows you better than you know yourself. When the good shepherd calls you to himself, he knows what he's getting. He knows the train wreck that we all are. He understands those things that we are trying to hide from ourselves and from each other. He sees the depth of our depravity. He knows who we are at our very core. These bad shepherds, they can only judge us by our external appearances. They can only judge us by what we show them. They will allow, we, we can hide who we truly are with these bad shepherds. And here's the problem with that. 
It's then up to us to keep up the charades. It's then up to us to stand in front of them and say, yes, I can measure up. With the good shepherd, there is no charade. When we come in with the good shepherd and say, I am weak, I am broken, I am a failure, I am a sinner, I struggle in these ways, that's no surprise to Jesus. That's no surprise to God. When he says he knows us, he knows us at an intimate level even more than we know ourselves. One of these things that happens in life, this is just a, a side illustration that I, 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 I went through this in seminary. I, I had this moment in, in uh, seminary. So, you know, you're assuming you're studying to be a pastor in seminary, studying the Bible. You should know all these things. I was sitting in a seminary class and it was a, it was a moment of worship where the realities of God opened up to me in a brand new way. And I'm sitting there going, how can I be saved and not have seen this? How can I be saved and not have seen how this is my sin in the matter? How can I be saved and not have gone through this experience? And I had this moment of like, oh, maybe I wasn't saved to begin with. The issue was I was thinking that God didn't see it. I was thinking that God didn't know about it. The only person that was learning something new about me for the first time was not God. It was me. The good shepherd knows you and is not surprised by the depth of your depravity. And so when we walk up to the good shepherd and not walk up, when we fall at, on our faces in front of the good shepherd and go, I need you, he goes, I know. I'm not surprised by that. I picked you knowing how weak and frail and helpless you are. Moving on. Verses 11 through 13. The good shepherd sacrifices himself for the sheep. The bad shepherds sacrifice the sheep for the shepherd. It says this. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not the shepherd who does not own the sheep. He sees the wolves coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolves snatch them and scatter them. The good shepherd comes in and says, I'm gonna stand by you. I'm going to die for you. I've said this previously, who would die for a sheep? Like that picture here, this image here of us being sheep as we looked at last week, we don't want to admit that as God describes us as a sheep being helpless and hopeless and stupid and dumb and lazy and all of those descriptors that sheep have, when God describes us as a sheep, that's an accurate representation of who we are as people. And here the creator of the world dies for us. Like that should blow our mind. So the good shepherd sacrifices himself for the sheep. The bad shepherd sacrifices the sheep for themselves. Moving on, verses 14 through 16, we see that the good shepherd gathers the sheep. The bad shepherds scatter the sheep. I think here there's an element of safety in numbers. When, when a shepherd gathers their flock together, he's gathering them so that he can oversee and protect all of the flock. He knows if I can have my eye on all of them, if I can oversee all of them, if I can bring them into one place, bring them into the one fold, I can protect them there. The bad shepherds just scatter them out. You're on your own. I hope you can make it. I hope you're good enough, smart enough, strong enough, and all of the other characteristics that, they, that, that they'll offer to you to make it in life. Hope you can make it to the end. The good shepherd goes, I know you can't make it to the end. Come here, I will protect you. The good shepherd knows that there's only one way to safety. The bad shepherd tries to find all of these other ways to God. 
One of the things that we're going to highlight this morning, and one of the things that I, I, I've been impressed upon as I've just been looking at Scripture this morning, or this week studying for this, the people that God calls out for being bad shepherds and wolves and thieves and robbers in Scripture are not those that are offering completely different salvation messages. He's not calling out those people who are the pagans, who are um, uh, you know, like the um, Egyptians, the other gods. He's not, he's not spending his time calling out those people. The time that he spends is on the people that offer a description of God, that are using God, but aren't fully offering what God has to offer. It's not that they're totally wrong. It's that they're, it's not that they're all wrong. It's that they're mostly wrong. There's some wrong. They're using language like God. They're using the scriptures like God, and yet they're applying it in the wrong manner. The good shepherd intends to grow and bless his sheep. The bad shepherds are here to use his sheep as we can continue on. The good shepherd protects at all costs, laying his life down for the sheep. The bad shepherd counts the costs and runs when it gets too hard. The good shepherd has but one flock and is willing to let anyone in regardless of your weakness. The bad shepherd is prejudiced to whom they will allow in their flock. Just to remind everyone once again where these teachings are directed, why Jesus is saying this. We're in this section of the Feast of Booths, and I, I, I'm, I, I pray that I'm overemphasizing this so that we can keep this in our minds. Jesus is questioning which kingdom are you following? Which shepherd are you following? Who are you trusting in? Started all the way back in, a, in John 7, looking at the Feast of Booths and all that go on. That's the, the continual mindset here. Which kingdom are you trusting in? So the question that can come out of this is, are you trusting in the good shepherd and all that the good shepherd offers you, or are you trusting in the bad shepherds? Now, one thing is clear by looking at John 10 and also by looking elsewhere in scripture is that Jesus, his description and his anger towards the bad shepherds is explicitly clear. He has a disdain for those who stand between the sheep and their shepherd, and it is unmistakable that he is angry with them. And as I've been thinking about this week of how are we going to tackle this topic of what the bad shepherds are look like, what, the, what those characteristics are, I really landed on going to Matthew 23. So I would encourage you to turn there because we're going to unpack this one chapter, not all the chapter, but a, a larger section of this chapter. Because as I really just search scripture for the ways to describe what a bad shepherd is and the characteristics, I keep landing on Matthew 23 because it is where Jesus, at the end of his ministry, unloads on the Pharisees. He gives them to the nth degree exactly who they are. This is what you are doing, Pharisees. And he, just, he calls on them seven woes. And we'll get to what these woes are because I know that's an odd way to say something. But I want to read for us the first 12 verses of 23 and just listen to the wording. And even better yet, try to put yourselves in the position of the Pharisees who are hearing this. This is a public rebuke. Jesus is standing in front of a crowd with Pharisees off to the side, and he is describing them. This is directed towards you. Here's, here's what he says. And Jesus, this is Matthew 23, 1, said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat and do so and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do, for they preach but do not practice. That's going to be a big thing this morning. They preach and do not practice. 
They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue. And the greetings in the marketplace is being called a rabbi by others. But you are not to be called a rabbi, for there is one teacher, and we are all brothers. And call no man father on earth, for there is one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humble. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is like the opening paragraph to the coming rebuke that Jesus is going to offer the Pharisees. But I want to unpack what even can be seen in this. We first see the hypocrisy of the Pharisees put on full display. Now, hypocrisy is going to be a, a, a big part of this whole chapter. But I mean, listen to what it says in 5. They do their deeds to be seen by others because they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Basically, they love to look spiritual, but their hearts are dead. They put on this plastic persona of being perfect. They, they, they know what a good Pharisee is supposed to look like. They know how a good Christian is supposed to act, if we could put it in, in, in this language, and they do it to a T. But it's just an act. It's just hypocrisy. They're just there to try to make themselves look good. And they're doing it out of pride, which is the next thing. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best, place, and the best seats in the synagogues. They walk around saying, I've got it all together. And you guys need to honor me for having it all together. Just compare that mindset with Jesus and how Jesus walked around. How the, the positions and the seats that Jesus assumed. Jesus didn't make the disciples wash his feet, though he very well could have. He washed his disciples' feet. He walks into a room of sinful dirty, and I mean that physically and spiritually, but dirty men, fishermen, who probably haven't had, is it pedicures or manicures, haven't had their toes worked on in a while, and put on an apron and said, let me wash your feet. And his disciples clearly were like, wait a second, Lord, this shouldn't happen. And yet Jesus is humbling himself, not only taking on flesh, because that's humility, not only living in this, in, in, in this state of sin that the world is in and suffering alongside humanity, because that is humility. He humbles himself to wash the feet of his disciples. And here Jesus is saying, these Pharisees are so prideful that they take the places of honor and they demonstrate for each other how spiritual they are. You can see their pompousness, or I learned a new word this week, pomposity, by saying the greetings in the marketplace is by being called rabbi by others. But he says, you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and are all brothers. Have you ever met that person that has achieved a great thing? And they just, they make sure that everyone knows about it. They make sure that everyone calls them doctor after they achieve their doctorate and, and, and yet you go it was honorary and you got it from, I don't know I'm not, I won't make fun of any because there's doctors in the room 
But there's this, like, there's this air of pride and arrogance of saying, make sure that you give me the credit that I deserve. And Jesus is, he's the son of man. He's not walking around saying, make sure you give me the credit that I deserve. It's the exact opposite again. So you can see just this juxtaposition between these Pharisees and Jesus. And then last but not least in this section, they think they're the gatekeepers. They're saying, come all to me who are weary and heavy laden. And if you do what I say, I might give you access to God. That's how the Pharisees operated in this world. But here, Christ is saying, listen, guys, there's one instructor. And guess what? Heads up. It's not you. It is Christ. This sets up seven woes that Jesus offers to the Pharisees publicly. This is a public chastisement. This is a public declaration. This is Jesus, again, at the end of his ministry saying, make no mistake who the Pharisees are. They've been put in place to lead you to God, but actually they've been leading you away from God. And Jesus is very clear. These are the bad shepherds. These are the wolves and the robbers and the thieves. And so if we're going to see the woes that are described upon the wolves and the, and the robbers and, and the thieves, this is what these woes are. Now, there's seven woes. And as, as I said, a woe is an explanation of grief, an exclamation of grief. This is him going, oh, my goodness. So every time you say woe to you, it's like, woe to you, Pharisees. Can you not get this in your head? I want to walk through these quickly, though. Verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That's going to be a big one that comes up. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourself nor allow those who go in to enter. Think about the blind man. Again, the story that illustrates everything that's going on at Feast of Booths. What was the fear with the blind man with his parents? If we agree that Jesus opened the eyes of the blind man, I'm going to get kicked out of the synagogue. And if I get kicked out of the synagogue, I'm going to lose all access to my spiritual life. I'm going to lose all access to my neighbors. They thought they were the gatekeepers. They thought that everything flowed through them. And Jesus is saying, you feel you're taking a position that you don't own. You are not the gatekeeper. Verse 15. Hey, side note, there's no 14 in here. Just as just some textual criticism stuff, kind of same way that John 8 was, where it didn't take place in the original manuscripts, but then came later. And this particular one, the, the ESV um, interpreters decided that 14 should just be foot, put in the footnote. So we're not going to talk about that. 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across land and sea and make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. You offer, they're offering a false message of hope. And it's more than just a false message. It's a damning message. They say, come be like us. Come put on that plastic persona. Come take that pride. Come, come accept this pomposity in, on, on your life. And yet what you're going to get from that is not glory, but is damnation. 16. 16 through 22 is this long section. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. And if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by an oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold of the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. And if anyone swears by the gift that, that is on the altar, he is bound by the oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift of the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who, shuts, him who sits upon it. 
And what's this say? I know it's a long section. You might go, what, what does that have to mean? Pharisees had this law, that this tradition. They were unwilling to say the name of God. They were unwilling to say the name of Yahweh. That's why actually we have, if, in, in, in the Hebrew text, we know the consonants that go with the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. We actually don't know the vowels because they were unwilling to say the full name, that they, they abbreviated it so much so that it's just been lost. Well, here they were unwilling to say God's name because they didn't want to blaspheme God. So guess what they did? They used these other things to say God's name. Instead of swearing by God, they would swear by the temple. But instead of swearing by the temple, they would swear by the gold. Instead of swearing by the gold, they would swear by the altar. They would just, they would make all of these other secondary things. Basically, it, it turned into this mockery. What Jesus is saying is like, you're trying, you think that you can get around this law. You think that you can, you can scapegoat what God has called you to. And yet you've just turned into this mess here. You, you, you can't get around God. You're mocking him. Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, like justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Bad shepherds want you to look at the works of your own hands. The Pharisees wanted the Israelites to take an account for what they have done and not done for God. Because in doing so, you could create a list. You could create a hierarchy. You could create a, a standard and a standing. They could ask, well, have you tithed 10% of even your spices? No, well, I have, so I'm better than you. Well, have you gone on the pilgrimage that we have told you to go on? No. Well, I have, so I'm better than you. Well, have you memorized all of the Torah? Oh, you've only memorized the first book of the Torah. Well, I have, so I'm better than you. They love to have this hierarchy of who is better than. They love to say, I'm closer to God because I've done these things. Jesus comes in and says, woe to you. Who cares? In one sense, it's because God doesn't need your mint, dill, or cumin. So you saying I've given 10% is like, he makes the stuff. If he needs it, he'll just create it. He doesn't need you to do that. But what he does call us to, and what frankly is harder and is more important and is something that can't be judged on the, on the uh, horizontal side of things is justice, mercy, and faithfulness. I think of Micah 6, 8. He has told you, oh man, what is good? And what, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. They could not do that fully because we're broken sinners. So they emphasized the things that they could do fully. How's your tithing been going lately? Has your spice rack 10% down as well? We're going to cover the next two woes together. This is 25 through 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which are outwardly beautiful appearance, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. 
We're getting to this point where we're just seeing how it's the same thing over and over. There's hypocrisy in your life. You think you're better than you are. You, put, you place this plastic persona. You think that you're, you're better than because on the outside you fix some things, but inside you still have this hard, dark heart that is far from God. And then last, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. This is 29. For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous and say... If we have lived in the days of our father, we have not taken part of these by shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. For you serpents are a brood of vipers. And how can you escape this being sentenced to hell? It's a heavy chapter, is it not? I mean, Jesus just, he left no hope for these guys. You think that you can... Earn your way to heaven. You think that you can manage the expectations of God. You think that you can change yourself from the outside in. That's not possible. Throwing the title around a false prophet or wolves or robber should not be used and taken lightly. It's something that we have to really consider who actually is a false prophet. Jesus clearly did not, he, he did not take this uh, rebuke lightly. When he stepped in, he said, you are leading my sheep away from me. But the question that we have is what makes the difference between a false prophet as opposed to a wrong prophet? And here's what I mean by this. There are some things that are life and death. In the eyes of God, there are some things that will land you in heaven and will land you in hell. And how is it do we take an account of where we're going to throw the title around saying, you're a false prophet as opposed to, I just don't agree with you on this part. And one of the things that we have to acknowledge, there are more churches in Nashville than gas stations. And for those of you who are looking for churches, because I can see some new faces in the room, I have so much compassion for you because it's like 37 flavors, like Baskin Robbins. You can get exactly what you want, the type of worship, the type of, you know, even how the pastor dresses and which, which Bible they use and, 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 and what's the, what's, what, what name is on the door and, and how do they preach. I mean, there is so much variety in the churches that are around Nashville. It's, are you an independent church? Are you a denominational church? Are you, you, you fill in the blank. You can have that. And it can create for us this air of um, who's right and who's wrong and who's different but okay and who's actually a false prophet. I I know in in my um, upbringing, it was very easy for me at times to assume that anyone different than me was wrong. Anyone different than our church that believed all of the things that our church believed, well, they're probably not going to be in heaven. You know, it's all of those jokes about everyone gets to heaven. It's like, make sure you you be quiet because all of the other denominations think that they're the only ones here. And so it raises for us in this whole discussion of false prophets, what does Jesus, what is actually the true litmus test for a false prophet? Because clearly Jesus is saying, if you follow after the Pharisees, where they are directing you is to hell. Where they are directing you is away from me. 
but I can go to a church down the street that has many other different things than us, styles of worship and even different theological beliefs and different styles and different traditions. And it would re, it could be really easy for me to go, well, if you look different than us, you are sending your people to hell. But I don't think that's actually wise. And I don't think that's what Jesus is, is calling us to do here, is that if anyone looks different, they are wrong. So I've taken some time to really figure out of looking at all of the comparisons that we just looked at in John 10 and Matthew 23 to boil it down to what's actually most important here? What's the litmus test that we need to use to determine whether that shepherd is a good shepherd or a bad shepherd? Whether those sheep are being led in the right direction or in the wrong direction? And I think it's this. The question that has to be considered because it comes up in John 10 and Matthew 23 is this. What does it take to be saved? What does it take to be saved? This question creates a very clear distinction between Christ and the wolves, between the good shepherds and the bad shepherds. Because Christ is gonna say what it takes to be saved it's come all to me who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. What the wolves are gonna say about what it takes to be saved, it's come all to me and put on your phylacteries and make sure you pray enough and make sure you tithe enough and make sure you do enough and make sure you look like me and then you can be saved. And this is a question that has been debated for since Christ's death 2,000 years ago. I could have, I'm not going to because I don't wanna bore everyone, gone just through the history and to see all of the times when this question has been debated, when different, when towns and countries have been torn apart because the answer to that question, what does it take to be saved, is answered differently by others. Well, highlighting what it says in John 10, the answer to that question is what does it take to be saved, is who is being directed towards Jesus and who is being directed towards Jesus plus other things or even entirely different things than Jesus. See, John 14, six is clear. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Yet so often, the way that this is promoted is in word only. But in practice, the expectation is Jesus plus. Think about how Matthew 23 started. They, I mean, it's very clear. You can, you, you can do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach what is right. They say it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But what they practice is wrong. What they practice is it's Jesus, well, but you also need to do this. It's Jesus, but you also need to tithe enough. It's Jesus, but you also need to make sure that your life is cleaned up enough. It's Jesus, but it's other things. But what the good shepherd comes in and says is, it's Jesus. But here's the thing about that. Jesus was listening to their, to their salvation message and what he was saying is, if it's anything other than it's the good shepherd who is calling you, adopting you, giving you all that you need and caring for you for the rest of your life, it's bondage. And it's anything other than that because Jesus was very clear about the state of man. 
He was very, he, he spoke in more dogmatic terms over the state that man was in than even the Pharisees did because his dogmatic terms were this. You're all broken. You're all in bondage. You are desperately wicked. There is no hope for you. You cannot save yourself. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. He is looking out at the Israelites saying, guys, you can't save yourself. So stop trying. And if the message is Jesus plus you trying to save yourself, that's bondage because if there's anything other than Christ, if you have to do anything at all, you are hopeless because you can't. And so he says it's the only litmus test that will work is is it Christ and Christ alone. This week I was, I was reading this great book by Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's called The Cross. Highly recommend it to everyone. And in it, and it's a, it was a chapter that stuck in my head. I've, I've read it a while ago and I, I came back to it this week. It's called The Acid Test. And what Lloyd-Jones is looking at is the acid test is, uh, is it true or not? It's the litmus test for the gospel. And here's what he says. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is either an offense to us or else it is a thing above everything else in which we glory. He goes on and says, your reaction to the cross, this is the acid test. This is the thing that searches out all of our hiding places and lurking places. This demands a decision urgently because we are either in one or the other of two different positions. And he asks the question, which is it? Now, what are these two different positions? Well, it's the position of this. Either we desperately are in need of Christ and have no hope without him, or we still have something to offer. He started by saying the cross of Christ was, was either an offense or something that we glory in. The reason that the cross is an offense is because what the cross communicates to all of us is that our only hope is in somebody else. What the cross communicates to us is that even on our best days, we have nothing to offer. What the cross communicates to us is that our only hope is that the perfect one came and lived the life that was required of us to live, to die the death that was required of us, and to rise again, and then for us to be declared righteous, not because we've done anything or will ever do anything, but because Christ has done it all. But then there's the other place. You can't say, well, Christ saved me and set me on the right path, but then I added to it. Or you could say, but I was good enough to find the shepherd, so look how wise I am in finding the right shepherd. But no, you're dead. If he's not going to call you and adopt you and, and bring you in, you can't find him. You see, here's this comparison between the wolves and the good shepherd. The wolves say, you're not that bad. We can fix this. We got this. Here's 10 steps to a happy and healthy and spiritually filled life. What the good shepherd says, you're desperately wicked. Sit down, I'll take it from here. What the wolves say, you have to bring yourself to God. You gotta clean yourself up. You gotta make sure that your phylacteries are straight. You gotta make sure that your tithing is in order. You have to make sure that you put on that good Christian plastic persona. Make sure that when you walk into church, everyone thinks that you are that good Christian that just reads your Bible, prays every day, and has it all good to go. What the good shepherd says, God comes to you in your sin and knows that you have nothing good to offer. What the wolves say, salvation's up to you. 
what the good shepherd says. You can't possibly do enough. I'll do it for you. If your message of the gospel is anything other than Christ and Christ alone, you're trusting in the wrong thing. And I said that this message was about bad shepherds, was about wolves and robbers and thieves. If you start listening to pastors, to influencers, to theologians, to in, in anyone, in, any shepherds, would-be shepherds in your life, and you start thinking, maybe I have to do something. Maybe there's a part of my life that I bring. Maybe it's not Christ and Christ alone. I would urge you, run. The other way to look at this, and I, to use some theological language, the most important doctrine that anyone needs to be judged on is their view of justification. Because if their view of justification is not we are declared righteous solely, fully, completely on the work of Christ and Christ alone, they're making your child a hell because of what they're telling you is you have to do it. But it's so easy for us as people that long to, to work our way to heaven. And we do long to, to do that. It's so easy for us to run to those people that are going to approach us in such a way to say, I, I can give you the steps. I can, I can, we can work on this. Because I get it. It's humbling to go, I've got nothing to offer, Lord. You have to do it. But here's the beauty. When we come to that point of saying, Lord, I need you. Lord, I have nothing else. Lord, I'm hopeless. Lord, everything that I could possibly offer you is, is rubbish. Our good shepherd calls us to himself. He gives us a name. He gives us a home. He gives us the protection. He gives us the righteousness that is required by God and is imputed to us, again, not because we are good, but because he is perfect and loving and offers that as through grace. Just as we wrap up this series, I'm a little longer than I was hoping to this morning. One of the things that's really been on my heart and mind, there's been kind of twofold. You hear the description of the good shepherd and the sheep and the bad shepherd and, and, and all, all who Christ is. And it really just makes me want to stop and ask the question, are you following the good shepherd? If you had to describe which sheep fold you're in, would you say it's Christ's? If you had to describe the, the person that you're listening to and that you're trusting in and that you're following, is that Christ? Is it the good shepherd that's not going to break you because of your weaknesses? He's going to offer you grace because of your weaknesses. Is it the shepherd that you don't have to fear to say, God, I can't do it. I'm not good enough. I need your help. Or is it the shepherd that you have to come in and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it from here and try to clean up my life. And oh my goodness, I hope you don't find out actually how broken I am. And if it's anything other than the good shepherd, I, I would urge you to run to him. But here's the second thing that's really been going through my head in this whole series. If we have a relationship with the good shepherd and we know that he is calling everyone to himself indiscriminately of the weaknesses and who they are, if we have that relationship, why are we not proclaiming with our very last breath every single day, come to my shepherd, he is amazing. 
There's this book that Amy got somewhere. I, somebody gave it to her as a gift. Um, it's called Sammy the Sheep. And she has not read it without crying yet. And she's read it like 20 times. I don't cry a lot, but it's emotional. It's, it's oh man, it'll hit you in the heart. And it's about a sheep that is adopted into the sheepfold. And this sheep is tore up. He's weak, frail, is, is malnourished, is dirty, doesn't know what to do. But he has this shepherd that is now the good shepherd. He came from the bad shepherd. He used to abuse him. He used to, you know, mock him and just put all of the weight up upon his shoulders. He couldn't do it. And he comes to this good shepherd. And he has to learn how to, to live with the good shepherd. And he has to learn to rest with the good shepherd. And he has to, to learn about the, the, the blessings of the good shepherd. But there's this part in this book when you can tell he finally gets it. And he's being mentored by this other sheep. When he says, but there's other sheep outside the fold that we need to go get. Why don't we also go share this news about this great shepherd? Because my shepherd is willing to accept all. Here's my exhortation to us all. It's the appeal that if we know this good shepherd, why are we not from our very last breath proclaiming it to every person out there? Because the weight of the self-righteous life is terrible. The weight that we think that we have to come in with this plastic persona that so many people are stuck in is ruining people's lives. Instead of coming in and saying, no, God will give you everything that you need. God knows exactly where you're struggling and he will accept you in your sin, not because you've done anything, but because Christ has done everything that is required by God. So the appeal is just as believers. Our good shepherd is there and is calling to the world to come in, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I just say that to allow that to rest on your own hearts this morning. Maybe the Lord is putting somebody in your mind right now saying, yeah, they, they, they need to know about the rest that we have in Christ. They need to know about my good shepherd who is amazing. Maybe you're the person to go tell them about our good shepherd. As we close this morning, as we do every week here at CBC, we close with communion. I just think of the verse where the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. Each week we get to be reminded we're not held accountable for our own lives or God is not judging us based upon our, our own lives, rather. He's judging us based upon Christ's life and his imputed righteousness to us. When we take these elements of the bread and the wine, grape juice, we, we're taking them to remind us of the hope that we have. We don't have to walk in here with our phylacteries tied across, uh, around our heads and our fringes long and our plastic personas of the good Christian life all put together. We can walk in here and say, the person I need, the thing that I need is found in him. And oh, by the grace of God, he has given me everything that I need. If you're here this morning and you haven't placed your faith in Christ, if, if you're hearing these things about the good shepherd and the bad shepherd, you would say, I don't know if I believe. What we would ask is that you just let these elements pass you by because we don't want them to confuse you. We don't take them to save ourselves, even to fill up our righteousness. We take them to celebrate the finished work of Christ. But here's what I would ask. Come find me after the service because I would love to tell you about our good shepherd because he is amazing.
Let's pray. Lord, thank you for loving us, for saving us in our weakness, for not leaving us in our despair. Lord, thank you that in a world that wants to judge us based upon what we have and have not done, we can look to you and, and, and know that you know we can't offer anything. And we can look to you and say our only hope in life and death is found in you. And you have graciously, incomprehensibly come to earth to take on flesh, to do what we could not do. That is live the perfect life that God requires and to die the death that our sin requires and to rise again and call us to yourself and through faith declare us righteous. Lord, thank you for that gift. Thank you for that message. Thank you that we as your children, as your sheep get to be in your fold. Just be with us now as we take your table. In your son's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.